Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series, Avoiding Infection, humans are naturally conditioned to avoid infection. It's disgusting. But as it turns out, this natural inclination might be the very thing that needs to be avoided in a church that's marked by mercy instead of sacrifice. Let's turn now to the second part of our series, Dealing with the Dead. This is Halloween, and let me just say on the front end, Happy Halloween. Uh, or if, if you're really uncomfortable with me saying that, Happy All Hallows' Eve, uh, whatever you want me to say. You know, it does feel like when I say that, when I say, that, when I say Happy Halloween, there's a, there's a part of me on the inside that feels like I'm going to get hate email later in the week for saying that. You know, it's, it's one of those things. I just Now, you may be different from me in this way, but growing up in my household, we didn't celebrate Halloween at all. Uh, it was off limits. And uh, I have to say, unfortunately, I am to blame for that. Um, I and Rainbow Bright are to blame for that. Um, I uh, was about three or four years old, uh, and at that time, my parents weren't nearly as um, you know, opposed to Halloween or celebrating Halloween in that particular way. Uh, but I was at my mamaw's house, and uh, on that night, there were lots of trick-or-treaters coming over and enjoying the festivities. And a young girl dressed in a rainbow bright costume showed up on my grandmother's front porch. And I was the one to answer the door. And when I answered the door, I flipped out, y'all. Like, I went nuts so over Rainbow Bright that was right in front of me. Now, I don't know what I have against Rainbow Bright or why that was a problem at all, but I had something against Rainbow Bright, and it scared me so deeply that my mom and dad, they were like, you know what, we're never going to celebrate Halloween again. It's just off limits, not going to happen. And so I grew up in a household, like, just mourning the ability to get free, not, the, or not being able to get free candy from strangers. Like, that was just brokenhearted. I think it's what's created my candy dependency today. Uh, if my parents would have just allowed me to indulge in moderation, perhaps I wouldn't be so out of control as I am today. But that's neither here nor there. Here, here's what I think about this. I mean, it, it is me. It is my family. But as I've looked around, I think culturally, and maybe even within the context of the church culturally, we have a little propensity to push back against this holiday. In fact, I saw a, a thread. It wasn't local to this county, but I still follow some of the other county threads and places that I've lived. And in it, somebody asked the question, they said, because Halloween's on Sunday this year, when are people going to be offering trunk or treats? You know, and there's all these like smart aleck comments underneath like, Sunday, <laughs> it's Sunday, yo, like we're going to get candy on Sunday. But then there were a few others, you know, and these are like the, the what, they're closer to my home, let me just say it that way, they're, they're closer to me. Like somebody came on there and was all like super righteous and they're like, you know, with Halloween on Sunday, I'm just sad to see that that so many parents are neglecting to honor God. You know, that, there's, this is the feeling, and I'm not judging that necessarily. I'm just highlighting that. That is the reality for some people. The idea of celebrating Halloween, especially on the Lord's Day, is there's this tension that maybe we're not honoring God in doing that, which is interesting. So I asked myself this question this week. I'm like, why is that the case? Why would Halloween sort of evoke this sentiment? And maybe your house was similar to mine, and it evokes that similar sentiment. It's not because of the pagan origins, right? Sometimes we say that. It's, it's got a pagan origin as a holiday, and so maybe that's it. But here's the truth. Christmas and Easter both had pagan origins, right? In fact, historically, Christmas time and Easter, those celebrations around the, the winter and the, and the springtime, 
um, equinox and the, the winter solstice, both of those seasons were much more celebrated by pagans than they ever were by Christians. And yet we've adopted those. We've pulled them in. Now, it is true that Halloween has sort of a pagan origin, but as I said, there are other holidays, in fact, our major holidays that have the same. So what makes this different? And here's what I think really kind of rises to the surface when I think about this. The difference is mortality. Right? With Christmas and Easter, we are dealing with some level of mortality. We're talking about Christ's mortality, his birth coming to earth. Easter, we're talking about his death, his resurrection. But Halloween is a, is a holiday that specifically focuses on mortality, and not Jesus' mortality, but our mortality. And in a culture, as Ernest Becker describes us, as a death-denying culture, this is uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about our mortality. We don't like to talk about that at all. In fact, I was doing what pastors do in weird times like this. This past week, I was talking to a fellow colleague about the strangest funeral they've ever done, because that's what we do to keep ourselves entertained. Um, and, and I was sharing my story, and he shared his. He said that and he worked as a chaplain for a while. He said one of the strangest things he ever did, and it wasn't a funeral at all, was he had to release a body to a family. Now, oftentimes, you'll release a body back to a funeral home. They'll take the body, and they'll prepare the body, and, and uh, then take care of the body, either burying it or cremating it. But in this case, the family wanted to take the body. The family was was convinced that they didn't need to call the funeral home. They were going to take the body. So they, he, he called a fellow uh, funeral director. He said, do you have a body bag? Can you come and help me? And they, they brought the body bag. They put this, this individual in the body bag. And then they took the body bag. They loaded it on the back of a pickup truck. And that pickup truck drove off. And they gave, they gave them all the rules. You have to bury him this deep. You have to have something over top. They did everything. And then about three weeks went by, and this, this chaplain got a call from the sheriff's department, and it said, hey, did you release such and such's body to this family? And he said, yeah, we did. We went through the checklist. We did everything. I said, why are you asking? He said, because we drove by their house today, and there's a body in a body bag underneath the carport. And we just want to know what is going on. <laughs> and so they pursued it. He said, I certainly have done everything that I needed to do, and the, the sheriff's department pursued this. They went over to the house. They asked what was going on after finding out that it was legally released. They said, well, it's just been raining. It's been kind of hard to get out. We don't, we don't want to really get out in the rain and dig this body, <laughs> dig this hole and bury this body, right? And, and as I heard this story at first, I had the same feeling you had. I'm like, that's insane. <laughs> There's a body under your carport. But as I thought more about this, this is often how metaphorically we deal with death. We want to put it in a bag, and we want to put it off to the side somewhere, and we'll have every excuse in the world not to deal with it, not to handle it, not to, not to approach it. And it's because we live in that death-denying culture that's around us. But as followers of Christ, we would assume that that would be different for us. Because we hold on to this idea that we're a people of the resurrection, maybe, maybe that could be different. You know, Paul thinks that this resurrection thing is the central claim of the faith. It should be everything to us. But somehow, as people of faith, we know this, you know this from experience, death still disgusts us. It still troubles us. It troubles us to have all these images of death floating around today, the demons and the goblins and the, and the ghosts and all of those things and those ugly costumes like Rainbow Bright, like it just disgusts us. It bothers us. And we get uncomfortable with that. And I said last week, 
our levels of comfort can actually be some of the most damning things to good theology in our churches. Because throughout the centuries, faithful disciples have often been more tempted by what's comfortable or what feels right than what is right. Right? Whenever we get uncomfortable, what you and I try to do almost immediately is we try to fix that discomfort. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get out of that and to be more comfortable. And oftentimes when we're in that space and we're feeling uncomfortable and something doesn't feel right, what we're going to do automatically is try to fix it with what does feel right. Even if what does feel right isn't right. And that's why it's important to think about this. this I, I would call this, this kind of theology like comfort theology. We just have a, something we throw out there that's comfortable. And what does that look like in the context of death? Well, comfort theology, when it comes to death in our lives, is the thing that causes us to trade out the resurrection of the body for eternal security of the soul. Now, some of you are like, aren't those the same thing? <laughs> What's the difference here? Resurrection of the body, eternal security of the soul. This is, this is, this is the same, right? And it's not. This is not the same thing. In fact, throughout history and through all these different philosophical movements, these have not been the same thing, but this is often what happens. Here, here's the comfort statement. Let me lay it out for you really quickly. The, the comfort statement that's backed up, that, that really kind of rests in the eternal security of the soul, says this. It says, it's nice to just imagine my body as a shell. And one day I'll unzip this body and my, my soul will fly away and I'll be fine, right? It goes back to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. We use that verse a lot of times to talk about this. And, and when we think of this, it's like, oh, I'm going to fly away. I'm going to leave all my cares behind. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. It doesn't matter what happens to my body. It's just my soul that really matters after all. And this is the kind of thing that I hear all the time. And when I hear it, I know it's comforting. I get it. It is comforting. It's something that we sort of perpetuate over and over again because the death of bodies disturb us, right? To imagine that this that is, is a part of me is going to experience the harshness of death is unbearable for me to think about. And so what I do in those moments is I disassociate. It's like a kid. You take their toy away that they, you know, you swear they love. Immediately you take away and be like, I don't care. I don't care that much about it at all, right? You do whatever you want with that toy, right? It's not a part of me. It's not something I enjoy. And so that's what we do when it comes to our bodies. We immediately disassociate and say, well, that wasn't a part of me. Even though I know I have to face death and I know it's a harsh reality, I didn't care that much about it. I didn't care what was going on with it. And as people of faith, we have developed all these practices to keep us comfortably, dis comfortably away from the death of our bodies. It might be our language. Like, we don't talk about the resurrection of body, we talk about soul, we, we prefer the soul, or it may be that, you know, some of us avoid Halloween, uh, and we avoid the, the ghosts and the goblins and all those things. Others of us, it gets a little bit more insidious where we might avoid those things that remind us of death in our culture, like poverty and pain and violence. And we turn away from all of those, because those things become images for us of death, and death becomes the binding point of destruction in our lives and disgust. And you know what's interesting is because the church wasn't always this way. In fact, you can Google this, Google images of St. Jerome. For those who are watching online, you get to see this, in fact. But, but if you'll Google an image of, of St. Jerome, Jerome is always pictured with a skull. It looks, every time I see a painting of him, it looks like something straight out of Sweeney Todd. I mean, it's disturbing, right? There's a skull lying somewhere nearby. It's a dark, dimly lit room. And he's got a pen that you just know has been dipped in blood that he's signing things with, right? And it's disgusting every time. And I think, 
This is Jerome. He's the one who translated or, or sort of pulled together all the Latin translations of Scripture and created the Vulgate. I mean, he's honored throughout history. This, this is a man who has been honored as a saint of the church, and yet he's always imaged with a skull right in front of him. In fact, sometimes he's like staring at it. I'm like, whose skull is that? That's disturbing that you want to look at this, right? But the early church wasn't disturbed by this. And Jerome, in fact, wasn't just, you know, he didn't have just some strange fascination with death. Actually, what he had is an appreciation of the body. He had an in-depth appreciation of the body that we often overlook. He valued all that his creator had made. And everything that the creator made, guess what he said? He said, it's beautiful. There's beauty in the context of what he does. And what I've come to discover in him and, and the other witnesses of Scripture is that there's actually an alternative to our comfort theology. There's something else laced within Scripture that values the body even when the body is weak, even when our bodies are frail, even when they're falling apart. Scripture pushes us to value that and to value the body even in the midst of death. And this is what the Apostle Paul is plainly speaking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The passage that I read to us this morning, the whole thing is about the resurrection, but at the end of it, he starts to answer some of the questions that the Corinthian church has. And the Corinthian church actually have questions pretty similar to us. Most of them are confused about what it means for the body to come back from the dead. And so he poses those questions in kind of a rhetorical way. In verse 35, we see this. He says, but if someone will ask this question, and i.e., I know you've already asked this question, so I'm going to respond to it right now. He says, if someone would ask this question, here's the question. How are the dead raised? What kind of body did they come back with? Right? And he knows that the Corinthians are being a little bit sarcastic here. They're being a little bit snarky when they're offering this. Some, you know, they got a little salty that day. I don't know why, but they did. And so he just gives it back to them with a little bit of wit. Whenever he responds in verse 36, he says, You fools, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, here what he's doing, he's actually referring us back to a passage in, in John where Jesus is teaching and Jesus says, unless a single seed is planted into the ground, it cannot die and break and multiply out into other seeds. And Paul is going to pick up on that very same imagery right here. And then in verse 37, he just clearly addresses the use of this analogy. He tells us what it's all about. He says, and as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but you sow a bare seed. You know, perhaps something like wheat or some other grain, something that's out there. But you, you sow this bare seed into the ground. And then he goes on to tie this in with our faith in verse 38. But God gives it a body just as God has chosen. And to each kind, a seed, its own body. And what Paul is unpacking here is that there is both, and, and hear me very clearly, there is both continuity and transformation in the context of the resurrection. In the process of death, there is continuity of life that continues on, and there is also transformation on the other side. And we don't have to completely, in, in our lives, you don't have to completely let go of one thing in order to experience the beauty of the other. There's a continual flow of beauty that takes place. And what I want you to hear very clearly is that part of the beauty is actually in the death. That's hard. That's that may not set well at all, and I completely understand that. As human beings, we cringe towards that reality. We push away from it. But what the early church understood is that if there is truly going to be continuity in life and transformation in our lives, and part of the beauty of what we hold on to 
is found in that moment too. Because it's in that moment, that single moment, death becomes the crux of the transformation. Death is the turning point in our transformation. It's not the moment where the temporal just lets go of the spiritual being that it's been holding on to all of these years. It's the moment where the temporal body gets to experience a new stage of evolution. We get to experience what God has made us to grow into, into eternity with Him. And in the next few verses, Paul's going to talk all about this with different bodies. He's going to talk about animal bodies and bird bodies and fish bodies and heavenly bodies like stars and moons and suns and all this. He talks about all these different bodies in the next few verses that follow. But then in verse 42, he says, All of these things have a diversity of body, but hear me clearly. They all experience transformation. They all experience the power of transformation. And in verse 42, he says, And so it is. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown in is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in the midst of dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is actually raised in power. All the things that we in the world find to be dishonorable and weak, all the things that we find in the world that are perishing and fading away, Paul says they have the possibility of transforming into something that's powerful, transforming into something that's strong, transforming into something that will never fade away. He says in verse uh, 44, he makes this very clear. He says, what is sown in a physical body is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, oftentimes this is the place where we'll be like, see right there, it says it's spiritual. But the, link, the, the linking word for Paul is a body. He says this both times. He says, what is sown in a physical body is raised in a spiritual body. And it's the second part of that verse that really struck my attention. He says, if there is a physical body, then there is also a spiritual body. Our corruption, our death just becomes the gateway to all the blessings that are out there. And the thing that we've feared, the thing that we've avoided, is actually the very thing that ushers us in to the fullness of life. But in both cases, physical and spiritual, there is a beauty that is grounded in body, physical body, spiritual body. Because as Paul says, if there's one, then what? There's also another. If there's one, then there's also another. And I want us to contemplate the, the power and maybe the discomfort of that statement right there. If there's a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. You know, we, we prefer one or the other. We like one or the other. We don't like to dwell in this in-between state. And most of the time, we would really want the latter, right? We want the spiritual body. We don't want the physical body. The spiritual body lives on and on and on. I like that. I like the strong things, not the weak things. I like the honorable things, not the dishonorable things. I like those things that are, are uh, going on forever eternal, not the perishable things. As soon as I can shed the bad and take on the good, I'll do it, right? As soon as I can get rid of that, that's what I want to do. And the Corinthian church, they viewed their lives the same way. They viewed their bodies and the bodies of others around them in the same way. And frankly, I think oftentimes that's how we view our world. We view relationships with our bodies and the bodies of other people around us in this way. But Paul says, if there is one, then there is also another. They work in tandem with each other and they work towards perfection because both are beautifully created bodies. One of the key contributors to our sinful attitudes and actions towards others around us, I think, is grounded right here in this, this verse. It's grounded in how you and I view bodies. 
If bodies are just things that can fade away into non-existence, then what does it matter how I treat them? If my body is eventually to fade away and to be no more, then what does it matter how I take care of it or how I treat you as an individual? But if there's something at work in my body that is created beautifully by the Creator, and if the physical body, then also the spiritual body, then I can feasibly, you know, if we separate these two off, I can feasibly do whatever I want to the physical body because it's decaying away. It doesn't matter. And that's the world that the Corinthians were living in. This is it. They thought that the soul was eternal. They thought the body was temporal. And as a result, women were treated as second-class citizens. As a result, children could be discarded on the side of roads if they didn't, their parents didn't want them. As a result, slavery could be optional if it was economically feasible. Why? Because bodies are disposable. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the eternal soul. And the Corinthians are living in that world, and their view of bodies has a direct impact on how they treat other people. So rather than suggest that we're just temporal beings waiting to shed our mortal skin for immortality, Paul flips it upside down. Paul doesn't say you're waiting to shed your, your outer robe and go up to glory in, in uh, heaven as a soul. Look at what he does. He, he actually says this perishable body must put on imperishability. This mortal body must put on immortality. The phrase that he's using here is, is a clothing metaphor. You've got to put on the clothes, right? Your perishable body has to put on the imperishable. Your, perish, your, your mortal body has to put on the immortality. So rather than taking something off, Christians are actually putting something on. We're taking it on right now. We're adding to the beauty of God's creation. And yes, yes, death is that transitional point. But look at what happens in this transition. In the transition where you choose to take on imperishability, when you choose to take on the resurrection of Christ as your own, Paul says this right here, when this perishable body puts on imperishability, this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that we all know is very true, death, death itself will be swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Right? The thing that we feared and are disgusted by the most, if we can flip this upside down and start to take on the resurrection of the body, death itself will be eliminated. And that's the final transition that Paul makes. That's the final thing that Paul will do to make sure that our existence, the center of our existence, is not disgusted by death anymore. The sting of death is gone. The victory of death is gone. It's all out of here. We don't have to fear it anymore. It doesn't lead to nothingness. We know exactly where it's leading us to, and we know exactly where it's leading us to because of this. Because the resurrection of the body promises us that you and me, we're not doomed to decay. We're not doomed for decay all our lives. Death is not the great finale to our bodies. It's merely the transitional point in our lives. It's the transitional point that we've all longed for. And that's why St. Jerome could pick up a skull and look longingly into it, right? And all the weirdness that that entails, he's holding tightly to that skull because he knows that's the moment of transition that we long for. That image of mortality and death, the skull or death, is the bridge that we've longed for. It's the door that leads us to the next stage. And it shouldn't disgust you. It shouldn't trouble you. But it should be that thing in your life that grounds you. You don't have to have... Uh, power, or that doesn't have to have power over your life. So the resurrection is certainly the thing that rescues us from the doom of decay. But the second and final thing it is, the resurrection gives dignity 
to that which is destined for destruction. It gives dignity to our lives for that which is destined. Now, dignity, let me just pause with this. Dignity is a really powerful concept in our world. Dignity is that thing in our life that, that shows you and me that we're worthy of honor and respect. And what happens in the context of the resurrection is that all of creation is given dignity. All of creation is given honor. In the face of death, right, who could honor an object of death that's destined for destruction? Who could honor that? That seems strange you would do that. But the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes all of that. It gives peace in the face of death. It changes the very way we look into the faces of others around us. We see dignity in everything around us. We can honor and respect all things as a vital part of God's creation in the face of the resurrection. John believed this so firmly that he said, look, he was talking to the church community in his first epistle. He said this very clearly. He goes, you know what? Those of you who are in this community who say you love God but you hate your brothers and sisters, you're liars. That's how he says it. He says, you're liars. You say you love God but you hate the things that God created. You hate the things that you can see. You're liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen in a body, in a flesh, cannot love God as spirit whom they cannot see. It's just not possible. Paul says we have to, or John says we have to have this sort of love for bodies. And the resurrection of the body is the single thing that transforms our perspective in this way. It transforms our perspective on the physical world and makes it different. It makes it worthy. It makes it honorable in our lives. And it enables us to truly love and discover the bridge between the physical and the spiritual. You know, as I said earlier, we as beings all have these sort of disgust triggers. Last week, I talked a lot about those disgust triggers, and I used more of them than I probably should in my sermon. I'm not asking you for your forgiveness, because I'll probably do it again next week. Um, but we, we have these disgust triggers in our lives. And one of those, disgust trigger coming up, just highlighted. One of those is bodily fluids. I want you to think about this. I'm not going to name it because it's disgusting to me. But every single bodily fluid that we have is a disgust trigger. Think about that for a minute. All of them. All of them except for one. This is very interesting. Psychologists have explored the disgust triggers in our lives and all of our bodily fluids remind us of our mortality, remind us of our death, the except of one. Your tears. Right? This is fascinating to me. Tears is the one thing that doesn't disgust us. And as psychologists have discovered this, and they've explored this a little bit more, tears for them, and they'll describe it this way, tears are kind of like the bridging fluid in our lives. We have this fluid in our lives that reminds us that we aren't just animals, but there's something on the inside that's stirring, that's calling us to something greater. And our tears, in this way, can become that bridge between the physical and the spiritual. Now this is, this is particularly interesting, I think, for us. For me as a pastor, I've stood in front of a lot of families over the past 18 months who are shedding a lot of tears. Yeah. And not just in the context of death, even though that looms large in our midst, but the context of illness and pain. And we shed those tears. And each time we shed those tears, we beautifully capture a 
fact that our bodies are longing to be something more, to be in something else, to be in another space. In fact, just this past week, I was flipping through Facebook and I read a post from one of my former students who's now early 20s and she said this, she said, you know what, and I, I imagine some of us probably feel this way, she said 2021 was supposed to be a year of new and great things and so far all I've taken away is loss after loss after loss. I feel like it's never ending. She says only God knows what I'm talking about so if everyone could just stop, say a prayer for my family as we've had to deal with a second death in the matter of month, this one really hit me close to home. All right, she's just one of thousands of people who've had the same experience. One of thousands who tears have fallen and they've fallen right at the edge of death. And our, our natural inclination, our natural inclination is to pull away in moments like this, to withdraw, to avoid, to be in denial because we know death is right there and that disgusts us and we don't want to think about that and so we'll pull away. But when tears fall and we see that with each other, we experience that ourselves, I want to encourage us, don't avoid it, but lean into that. I sat at a round table with four other fifth graders this week and one of the questions that I posed to them was, do real men cry or do men cry? And in a, in a beautiful you know, little, little discussion, all of them were like, yeah, absolutely, all of them, you know. And I thought to myself, as a grown man that, that has been socialized in a way that would say we don't cry as much or we don't cry as often, I wonder when the turning point is for them. I wonder when it will happen in their life that maybe that answer will shift just a little bit. And so I, I do want to speak to men for just a minute because I think we're, we are socialized in such a way that we push away from our tears. But tears are the way in which we connect with one another at a deeper level. That we continue to honor the fact that we aren't just flesh, but we are something more. And so don't, don't deny that to yourself, men and women, don't deny that to yourself. But also don't deny others in your life the opportunity to express that. Don't get weirded out and walk away. Lean in. It's moments like that where where that emotion is rising up, where we need to lean into one another, where we need to be present for one another, where we need to express the power of the resurrection for one another and to call one another into a place where we say, you know what, this life is not all there is to this life. There's more. There's something that your soul is longing for. There's something that God is calling you to. And yes, it involves this physical form, but there's more. And I'm going to honor you in this place that you're in, this brokenness that you're in. And I'm going to take a step forward. And as people of faith who do not fear death, this is what you and I can do. This is what we can do for each other, and this is what we can do for the world around us in seasons as dark as this. And so as we close today in remembering the scars of our Savior, as we remember His brokenness for us, I want you to hold on to the brokenness in your own life, and see the ways in which you can use that brokenness for others around you. Would you stand with me as we pray? Gracious God, we thank you so much. We thank you that you are one who does not stand at a distance when it comes to our brokenness and pain. But you enter into the context of our world. 
experiencing life as we do, wrestling with the hopelessness that surrounds us. We even have stories in our sacred text about the tears that you shed. And God, today we ask that you would stand beside us in the context of our own tears. Once more, that you would be present with us, holding us and carrying us forward to new life. In Christ's name we pray, amen.